arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. It starts with the setup. You owe me 15 grand, pal. <laughs> then you bait the hook. Your boss is quite a card player, Mr. Kelly. How does he do it? He cheats. You play him on the wire. The wire's been out of date for 10 years. That's why he won't know it. Now he's ready for the sting. Ah, the ultimate con, the sting, with Robert Redford and Paul Newman. Gordon Butts has a need. A need to advance and gain power in the business world and with women. In Confessions of a Confidence Man, a handbook for suckers, by Edward Henry Smith, he said there are six definite steps or stages of growth in a confidence game. And he said this back in 1922, a hundred years ago. First, number one, foundation work. Preparations are made in advance of the game, including the hiring of any assistance required. Studying the background knowledge needed for the role. Approach. The victim is approached or contacted. Build up. The victim is given an opportunity to profit from participating in a scheme. The victim's greed is encouraged such that their rational judgment of the situation might be impaired. Payoff or convincer. The victim receives a small amount of payout as a demonstration of the scheme's purported effectiveness. This may be a real amount of money or faked in some way. In a gambling con, the victim is allowed to win several small bets. In a stock market con, the victim is given fake dividends. The hurrah, a sudden, a manufactured crisis or change of events that forces the victim to act or to make a decision immediately. This is the point at which the con succeeds or fails. With a financial scam, the con artist may tell the victim that the window of opportunity to make a large investment in the scheme is about to suddenly close forever. The in and end. A conspirator, in on the con, but assumes the role of an interested bystander, puts a small amount of money into the same scheme as the victim to add to the appearance of legitimacy. This can reassure the victim and give the con man greater control when the deal has been completed. Let's start the last episode, episode five of Framed by Robert P. Fitton. Framed by R.P. Fitton, chapter 23. Every time we took an evening cruise around the Sound during the summer, or even on extended holidays, Connie drank heavily. I was both annoyed and bored playing up to her, Garrity. Being nice to somebody who continuously kept at me was a chore, but I did it. I did it for Shannon. I did it for the big picture. I was getting nervous, frustrated, waiting for Connie's death. I was certain my opportunity would come late on a Saturday afternoon. Connie seemed very nervous about the auditor's reports and had a few drinks with Peter Walsh and his wife before we left the marina. She went after some private stock once we were on the yacht. By 8 o'clock, she showed signs of being loud, her speech slightly slurred, and when she swaggered to the bathroom, she appeared as if she were in a bad storm with the waves kicking. I didn't pour one drink for her, but allowed Peter and Shirley to see how she was getting drunk on her own accord. I could now envision the scenario as the police investigated it. It was a typical cruise out. Connie performing with the bottle as she usually did gave me my alibi. We all sat on a leather sofa and chairs in the wood-paneled suite below. Directly under the deck, the cabin was the size of a suburban house's living room, but with lower ceilings. When she first began drinking, Connie paced the floor. By ten, she was almost incoherent, stumbling and antagonistic. She picked a fight with Peter twice. I liked the way this was going, and wish I could announce the blow-by-blow to Shannon back at Crane's Beach. Petey, you're a warehouse guy. You've always been a warehouse guy. Just leave the big decisions to the big people. Connie, maybe you should get to bed, I said with a feigned concern. Is that what you tell all your employees, Gordon? How you like to bed down your wife? Oh, he's good, Peter. 
Gordon isn't the little pinhead he looks like. He performs all his duties the way he should, if you know what I mean. That's enough, Connie. You're embarrassing Peter and Shirley. Why don't you go in and sleep it off? You don't tell me what to do, Gordy. You don't own this company or my body. Peter knows it, don't you, Peter? He does. Everybody does. You're just a peon like the rest of them. She reached for the edge of the couch the amber liquor, moving like waves in the glass, and tripped toward the stairs. I stood and moved toward her, holding her arm. Where are you going? I need air. There's too much hot air down here, Gordy. She'd given me the perfect lead-in, and I spoke in a loud and clear voice. I don't think you should be walking around up there. I held her shoulders. She slapped my arm in front of Peter and Shirley. Leave me alone. I could see Peter's surprise. Connie spun, drink still in hand, and stomped through the swinging louver doors and up the deck stairs. I rushed over and nudged the doors and then peered up the stairs. She'll be all right. She just needs to sober up. I'm sorry, Peter. Look, why don't you two freshen up and we'll play some gin rummy in a few minutes. Yeah, sure. But he looked up the stairs. Sounds good to me. Maybe we can get Connie back down here, said Shirley. I'll let her cool off first, I said. I'm going to use the facilities and then I'll meet you back here in ten minutes. Will do, Gordon, said Peter. I walked directly toward my bedroom, and from the corner of my eye, I saw Peter and Shirley enter the opposite cabin across the room. I let them see me enter my own cabin, and then listened at the door. The other door closed. I counted to ten and waited. Then I squinted through the prop door and slithered outside, closed my door, and gently pushed the louvers. I started stealthily up the deck stairs. Cold, heavy type of salty sea air pushed down the stairs, and the boat's powerful engines resonated through my bones. I expected to see cloudy skies or fog moving in with the front. Above me was a brilliant star spread with no moon. The outlines of the horizon and the shore lights twinkled across the waters. We were miles offshore, and Connie would not return, with the boat moving away. Crouching, I checked the bridge. The boat pilot was about 50 feet to my left in a slightly elevated perch, lighted by instrument panels and auxiliary ceiling bulbs. The captain's white cap was barely discernible through the rear window slits. He faced forward and looked busy. I smiled. At first I didn't see Connie as I stepped onto the wood plank deck. She was perfectly positioned about 40 feet away down back, near the flags flapping in the night. I could see, as I walked along the rail, the slosh from the wake splitting the central sea behind the boat. She held the drink and was slightly slouched, hand on the back rail as she looked toward the open sea. It didn't matter to me if she saw me, but I took no chances. If she ever survived, she could claim I pushed her. I would have had a difficult time explaining myself. That was my only concern, Garrity. I knew I was going to kill her. Funny how you kill once and then it becomes easy. The hard part was waiting, even killing Walter Thornton. The time lapsing while he was finally face down in the mud seemed to last forever. I tiptoed along the rail and hunched over so she couldn't see me. The boat rolled ever so slightly as I approached, and the wind blew back my hair. She was drunk, Garrity, and she didn't even sip the drink. Her little face was ghostly against the white waves. She gripped the drink in her hand as if it were the only thing steadying her. She was only 15 feet away, 15 feet away from quickly pushing her over the rail and into oblivion. I moved over the life raft rope and up the slick deck. I could sense that I was going to be successful. Connie would soon struggle to stay afloat in the water or maybe she was drunk enough to sink. I crawled and was only six feet behind her. I tensed my leg muscles, my heart cranked up and I leaped forward like a frog extending both arms, palms, and my fingers. With little effort, I shoved her over the rail. The drink went skyward but didn't hit the deck, thank God, and Connie was gone. I heard no splash, nor did I see an impact in the water. I stayed down. I didn't want her looking back and seeing me gloating by the rail. Maybe I should have hit her harder, but she was gone. I knew she might be taking water into her lungs right now as she flipped her arms in the salt water. I was hesitant to stand and let a few minutes pass. 
Slowly, I grabbed the brass rail and pulled myself upward. The wake, wider and whiter at this angle, spread behind the boat, but the ocean was murky. I stood and held the rail. The wind blew back my hair again, and I felt numb. I might as well have just thrown a rock or a piece of wood into the water. Didn't matter to me. No more looking, Garrity. The deed was done, and I turned and walked straight along the deck. I was at the deck stairs in 15 seconds. You'd think I would imagine what Connie was going through right now, fighting for her life in the water with the boat moving away at high speed. Instead, I was thinking about Shannon McCurry swimming, swimming in the Tanglewood pool. I descended the stairs and snuck below deck. Peter and Shirley were still in the bedroom when I slipped into my room seconds later. I poured myself a drink, set it on the end table, and lay back on the bed, still thinking of Shannon. I had a phone connected to the mainland, but I couldn't be so dumb as to be placing a call to Crane's Beach. I had to play it cool for a long time. They would be watching me, and you would be watching me, Garrity, because you knew I killed Walter Thornton. And I knew you'd be telling whoever your counterpart was that I was a likely suspect having pushed Connie overboard. You had no way to prove it or to implicate me in either death, but that would be obvious. It would be obvious that I would have gained. Even if I had waited a long time to marry Shannon, you and your counterpart would know that I did. You'd figure how Shannon used to work at Guido's. But what did that matter? What did it matter if you can't prove it definitely in a court of law? I could take the heat. I didn't care if I was hassled for the rest of my life. Now as I lay on that bed, rolling with the same tide carrying away Connie's body, I had control. I controlled Walter Thornton's burgeoning fortune. I had moved in and just taken control like Connie had taken control. I played cards with Peter and Shirley. At 1 a.m., 45 minutes after Connie left the lower cabin, I stood and announced I'd go above and talk to her. I figured she was five to ten miles behind us now. I waited up top, strolled under the stars, and gazed back along the shoreline. I went back quickly, and in a panic, burst through the louvre doors. Peter! She's not on deck! What do you mean she's not on deck? He asked, still not comprehending what had happened. You mean you don't see her on the deck? No, she's not up there. As they followed me up the stairs, I put on a masterful performance, Garrity. We notified the captain, and with all the auxiliary lights blazing, Peter's voice shook and surely whimpered as we searched. The captain immediately called the Coast Guard and slowed the yacht. He came out and shined an intense spotlight into the slightly undulating waves. I maintained a frightened but tense countenance throughout the preliminary search. The captain brought the yacht in a large loop as Peter and I both held spotlights. We could search all night, but I knew I had won. There was no body in this area, but I pretended to be at first concerned, and then after about 15 minutes, when the captain was on the radio talking to the Coast Guard, I faked being frantic. Peter and Shirley parroted the story just the way I wanted, stressing Connie's once again being very drunk. I blame myself for letting her drink so much. It's all in the report, isn't it, Garrity? The poor, grieving husband. The papers and the TV stations even picked up on this one a few days later. Poor old Gordon Butts lost his beloved lush at sea. The orange and white Coast Guard choppers flew over the horizon from some interior base and were circling overhead within the hour. But it was all over, Garrity. Everyone aboard knew it was hopeless as they shined their lights across the open ocean. A smaller boat arrived about 3 a.m. and the sea was bright as day. I was tired and asked the Coast Guard lieutenant, after I gave a statement, if I could go below. I climbed into bed, shut off the light, and lit a glowing cigarette in the dark. It was like finishing up a sales presentation. You've done all that you can do. All the votes were in it, and it was a matter of waiting it out. A few minutes later, as the boat gently rocked, I finished the cigarette and put it out in the ashtray. I slumped, and my heart kept a steady pace as I puffed up the pillows. A hint of a smile covered my lips as I turned over in the blackness, pulled up the sheets, and was asleep within a few minutes. Framed by R.P. Fitton, Chapter 24 Morning found me back at the marina. I awoke well-rested and ready for a contingent of police officers and FBI who were waiting for me at the dock. I didn't see you, Garrity, but I figured they had talked to you or one of your team. I prepared myself as I showered and dressed, just as I would for any high-pressured sales call. My hair was still slick as I trotted up the stairs and into a stiff onshore breeze. 
A shaky Peter Walsh and his wife were still on the marina dock. Peter's arms moved dramatically as he retold the story, but all eyes swung to me. I made sure I was sufficiently glum, but not too sad. I claimed a lack of sleep, but inside I was humming. I disembarked and was first approached by a little short Irishman, the Detective Keogh. He spoke quick and tough. Mr. Butts, I'm uh, Detective uh, Glenn Keogh. I'm sorry about your wife. These guys were engaged in the same type of theatrics as me. I've uh, talked extensively with the Coast Guard and uh, they haven't been able to find your wife's body this morning. We theorized she may have fallen sometime before you realized she was missing. Maybe this guy really believed it. I couldn't conceive they'd really buy my story and only counted on them not being able to prove it. But Keogh wasn't acting. Maybe he hadn't talked to you, Garrity. He really believed Connie had gotten drunk and fallen overboard. I looked to my right and back up the docks. A small media force was ready with cameras. Are you saying that uh, she was aft on the vessel, leaning on the railing with a drink in her hand? Well, that's exactly what I'm saying. Oh, God. There's no hope. There's no hope, detective. She's gone. Doesn't look good. The woman should not have been up there alone if she was drinking, like everybody says she was drinking. I know. It's my fault. No, I didn't mean you specifically, Mr. Butts. What does the Coast Guard say? I asked in the naivest voice I could muster. Well, they're retracing your course in conjunction with the pilot of your yacht. Look, I need to ask you a few more questions. It shouldn't take long. We can get you around those newspeople up on the dock. They probably suspect you of all kinds of things. I looked into his eyes. I understand. Keo walked me down the end of the pier. I looked into the gasoline-coated water and thought about Connie's body for the first time. Keo studied his notepad. I have down here at 12.15, according to the Walshes. Well, that's correct. She was drunk long before that. She went up to get some air. Keo tightened his ruddy, unshaven face. Peter Walsh uh, tells me this was a common occurrence for Mrs. Butt. Connie went by her former name, Thornton, and she's been known to uh, have a few drinks on the boat, but I wouldn't say she had a drinking problem. Well, she's overboard, Mr. Butts, because of alcohol. I'd say she had a drinking problem. Did you see her after she went up top? No, I lied. In the water? No. I compressed my brow and decided to take the aggressive approach. You listen to me, Keo. The damn Coast Guard should have found my wife a long time ago. This is ridiculous. Agreed. Do you have anything to gain by her dying? Everything. I'd get the business, the house, everything. He was taken aback by the forthrightness and it buttressed my claim of innocence. Who would have the balls to admit the obvious? I had learned that from Connie. Keogh backed off immediately. He spent no more than ten minutes with me, asked me inane questions about the location of Tanglewood, what I drove for a car, and what Connie had been doing for the last month. I had every answer timed and delivered just the way he wanted it. He thanked me and brought me up along the docks. They had a police car alongside the boats for my own protection from the media. Keogh said he'd get my jag back to Tanglewood, and I handed the keys to him. For the first time, although I'd been charged with nothing, Garrity, being in that police car reminded me how close I was to the electric chair. I gazed out the window and held my shaking hands. My heart skipped out of control, and I clamped my jaw. I chided myself for not having more control. There was only one officer in the car, and he was trying to get around the media. I leaned back as the cams and the still photographers poked through the entourage and their microphones extended toward the windows. My heart settled down once we were away, and the strong pounding reminded me of Walter Thornton's weakened heart muscles and how I had pushed those muscles to tighten and die. Cold chills covered my body, but I was sure the officer didn't see my defenses down. Even after I killed Walter Thornton, I never felt these mixed, almost sickened feelings. My stomach was nauseated, churned, and I feared I might throw up. I'd have a story for that, too. I could explain how I felt so bad about my wife's demise. I wanted Shannon next to me. She must have wondered if Connie was dead by now. She knew she'd have me and the entire fortune. But I had to control myself, not call her, and let the whole thing ride for a long time. She knew that, too. 
As the officer drove north through the city streets toward Tanglewood, feelings of uncertainty and panic shook me, Garrity. Wonderful, this human brain, allowing such deception, but it all comes down to guilt. I don't care who we are and what we think we can do with impunity. It all comes rushing back. Guilt is the human emotion that can't be erased. It surfaces in the night or in times of weakness and directs the body back to confessions and a sense of morality. I thanked the officer and gave a short speech to the servants in front of the entrance. With everyone in a state of shock, I dismissed all of them indefinitely and walked through the foyer. My heart wouldn't slow down as I poured a tall glass of brandy and gulped it. I wanted to get drunk quickly and effectively. I filled the snifter again and stared down at the brown liquor and drank slowly this time. But I felt the effects immediately. I was drunk within a half an hour and walked out the rear doors. The juniper trees rippled in the breeze with the clouds marching off the bay. I moved down to the pool where I had first seen a half-naked Connie years ago. I kept asking myself as I staggered forward onto the tiles why I had to take the drastic measure of killing her. A large emptiness spread over the estate. Connie had lost control and the company was squealing in my hands. I felt lightheaded. I knew I wouldn't be able to stand. I walked over to one of the side granite benches and stretched out on my belly. My eyes closed and I passed out and was out for a long time. Rain woke me. My breath was bad, a stench stirring that nauseated feeling in my gut. I wasn't drunk anymore. It was late afternoon and my head ached. I looked back toward the house as the rain began to hit the hot concrete and disappeared. But something bothered me, Garrity. Just before I pushed Connie, I stepped over the lifeboat ropes. Why were the life raft ropes hanging over the decks? Had she lowered the boat in anticipation of my attack? She had no indication I was going to push her. Maybe it was coincidence. I racked my brain but couldn't conjure up an image of those rafts being locked in position under the side rails. I had to know whether she was dead. I pushed myself up. The rain fully hit my face and the hangover split my head. I needed to take something for the headache and still felt as if I would vomit. I shuffled along the blue line pool, now perforated with raindrops, and trudged up the stairs back into the house. One of the servants during the afternoon was working in the kitchen. I asked her if the police had called and she said there was no calls. I was prepared for more questions. Alone, with no story to tell, my guilt further increased. I went upstairs to the bedroom and swore I could smell her perfume, Garrity. If she was able to get on that life raft after I pushed her, I would be indicted for attempted murder, and then you'd start presenting your case about Walter Thornton. I took two Tylenol and something from my stomach. Then I ran the shower. Her bath oils and soaps were still on the tray line as near the hot tub tiles. I swatted them away, sending the oil across the floor. The top bottle broke and a puddle formed. The ensuing aroma made me feel like she was in the room. I stopped the shower and yanked out two towels from the closet. I soaked up the greasy liquid and doused the water and soap onto the floor. But I couldn't eliminate her sweet honey smell. I ran with a towel around my waist to the guest room and started the shower in the adjoining bath. I scrubbed my hands so thoroughly I thought my skin might blister. I scrubbed my hair and soaked my body. I wiped away any trace of the body lotion. The warm water soothed my skin as I thought of Shannon. The pressure gnawed at me, but I had to talk to her. The cops suspected nothing. I could get to the apartment if I was careful and let her know if Connie was dead. It shouldn't have been so difficult for the Coast Guard to find the body. Maybe the storm was hindering the search. She had to be dead. She was stone-cold drunk, but the raft may have already been lowered. I ran from the shower. I was determined to hear Shannon McCurry's voice that night. I would elude the cops if they were following me, but I had to act concerned. I slipped on my boxer shorts and picked up the bedroom phone. I didn't smell Connie's lotion anymore. I placed a call to Keogh to cover my ass. Thirty seconds later, the detective was on the line. Detective, I just woke up. Listen, your Jaguar uh, is back in the driveway. I kept the media away from your place. Thanks.
How difficult can it be to find the body? Well, we've talked to them. There are a number of factors that could uh, preclude the body coming to the surface. Then you'd think she's dead. Well, I'm leaning in that direction after all these hours. Mr. Butts, I have a question for you. I cringed and tightened my fist. He must have wanted more details. Maybe it was unraveling. Sure. The life raft. I closed my eyes and fell back on the bed. No, why would the raft... She may have lowered it, you know, being drunk. Well, how hard can it be to spot a raft, I asked. True. pilot of the boat said it was a bright orange raft. Yes, that's right. If she took down that raft, we'll find her once the search resumes. Resumes? Yes, when the storm is over. I realized how lucky I was. Connie, even if she had lowered the raft before I pushed her, wouldn't survive in a storm. When I hung up with Keo, I knew Connie was in no condition to find the raft in the darkness or even spot it. She was just too drunk, and I convinced myself as I dressed, Connie had hit the water hard. The impact, combined with the effects of the liquor, would have knocked her out. Water almost immediately would have entered her lungs. She must have been dead before I was playing cards downstairs. They were going to find that empty raft, and her body would surface. I needed to get my thoughts together. I was in charge now. Connie and Walter Thornton were both dead at my hands, and I was in control. Framed by R.P. Fitton, Chapter 25 I wanted to talk to Shannon, and I wanted her to know Connie was gone, but I would have to find a secure phone line. By evening, exhausted from drinking and the strain, I moved toward the master bedroom and thought I could still smell Connie's honey body lotion. With hints of honey in the air, I went to the bureau, slid open the drawer, and pulled out a pair of swim trunks. My body was drenched with sweat even after the shower. I slithered into the trunks and picked up my cell phone off the bed. I left the bedroom thinking one thing. If Keo alone had wanted to talk with me, I would have panicked. But I worried about you, Garrity. Having you lurking around after Connie's death would signal that you thought I killed her too. And you would have probably talked with Keo sharing all your doubts about Walter Thornton's death, his murder. A vacant feeling came over me again, especially when I thought about talking with Shannon. But I had to talk to her, Garrity. I raced from the bedroom and moved downstairs. I crossed the kitchen, cell phone in hand, and jogged across the rain-slick patio. The storm had blown out to sea, and the junipers were silhouetted against the city lights as I reached poolside. I wanted to leave Tanglewood right now. Things hadn't started to tighten, but I knew they would, only because if you had talked to Keo. That was the reason I had to flee. Had you spoken with Shannon, too? Did she have any idea about Walter Thornton? She certainly gave her consent to my actions against Connie on the boat. I set the cellular on the tiles. I felt my bare feet against the gritty diving board and slid forward. Maybe Shannon had panicked. I had to talk to her now, but I continued to believe that I had really pulled off Connie's murder. I dove outward, my hands hitting the water first, and the coolness soothed my body as I penetrated the surface. Below, I floated free, but I heard something like a phone ringing. I quickly pushed my way to the top. My cell phone rang on the tiles. You were calling, Garrity. I was swimming across the pool before I answered and veered like a boat running aground onto the blue tiles. I grabbed the phone, thinking it might be Shannon, but pushed the button. Gordon, this is Garrity. Garrity? I was lying on my stomach, breathing rapidly. You heard about Connie. What happened there, Gordon? I told you what I told Keo and kept waiting for you to either accuse me of the crime or of killing Walter Thornton. But you said nothing. You were so cool, Garrity. You wanted the definite proof. I didn't dare ask you whether you had talked to Keo, but I knew you had. I know you two were talking about how I killed both of them to get power and money. You just listened, which riled me up all the more. That's what you wanted, Garrity. You wanted me to keep thinking, the gradual pressure building while the guilt started eating at me. But I wasn't ready to confess to anything. I didn't tell you I felt panicky and wanted to leave town. You said you'd call back later, but I felt things closing in. Yet, you had no proof. Maybe I should get Shannon and transfer out as much money as possible and have the jump on all of you. I shut off the cell phone and leaped back into the pool. 
I swam hand over hand until I reached the far end, and then I turned under water, re-emerged, and swam again. I swam until my sides ached, and I hoped the cramps would incapacitate me and force me under water. The guilt came, Garrity. Maybe if you had blamed me, the anger would have quelled the guilt. I crawled out of the pool, tiptoed across the tiles, and fell on the grass. My stomach muscles were ripped apart, and my eyes stung from the water. I saw blurry stars over the junipers. I went out, and was soundly out until the birds woke me. The sun had not yet risen. A few stars were still out. The rest of my body was in pain, and I fought to get to my feet. I entered Tanglewood's empty kitchen and knew that Connie's body floated somewhere in Long Island Sound. I was going to beat you, Garrity, and I would beat Connie and everyone. The money was not as important now as having Shannon and getting away with the murders. I walked up the rear staircase and planned my day. I would fully cooperate with Keogh, even calling him after I had breakfast. I needed to know if they had found the body. Thinking she might be alive left me anxious and waiting to flee. But I kept my head, Garrity. This was worse than Walter Thornton's death. At eight o'clock, having gotten rid of the remaining servants, I finished my orange juice. None of them seemed shaken by the news of Connie's potential demise. Before the cook left, just after nine o'clock, I was informed Keogh was on the phone. He told me the storm had gone to the south, the relevance of which escapes me until now. I wasn't thinking clearly, and I knew it. Keogh told me the search had already resumed and he was in constant contact with the Coast Guard. But he talked about the raft again and questioned me repeatedly. I kept my cool answering all his questions, but I remained perplexed about the raft. I told him I couldn't sit around the house and I had to go to work and I gave him my cell phone number. He seemed to understand and didn't suspect the real reason of my getting out was to call Shannon McCurry. I saw a few stragglers from the meteor near the front gate and moved the jag through one of the rear entrances. I was glad to leave Tanglewood and made up my mind I'd sell the property and have my own place. I headed out of town and toward the warehouse. I had only been on the highway for a few miles when my cell phone rang. I prepared for another round with Keogh. Mr. Butts. Yes, this is Gordon Butts. Mr. Butts, this is uh, Dr. Manuel Valdez. The connection was muffled. Yes, doctor. I was relieved I didn't have to deal with Keogh right now. What can I do for you? Mr. Butts, I, uh, I need you to come into my office. What? Why? We've been studying the results of Sean and McCurry's tests. I need to see you right away. What did you find? I asked, fearing something was dreadfully wrong with Shannon. This isn't very easy to say, Mr. Butts. It never is. The hell are you talking about, Valdez? Mr. Butt, Shannon McCurry, it's HIV positive. It does not look good. I'm sorry. I veered into the breakdown lane, my heart pounding, and I wondered if the virus was swimming inside of me. Had Shannon been infected by me? Unlikely. She's the one who wasn't feeling well. Mr. Butt, are you there? Yeah. Maybe you have a false reading on her. She doesn't seem to be the kind of girl that... Apparently, she went out with a man who was an intravenous drug user. We're trying to locate him right now. No, this can't be happening. I'm sorry, Mr. Butts. If you're able to get in my office in New Jersey... Okay, okay, I'm heading toward New York right now. Is there a possibility I don't have it? I pulled back on the highway and rocketed past the warehouse exit. I didn't even check if anyone was following me. Damn you, Shannon. Damn you and your boyfriend. I dialed Shannon's number in New Jersey. It rang four times and the machine kicked in. Hello, Shannon McCurry here. Actually, if I were here, you wouldn't be hearing this funny little message. Well, let me know what's up and I'll call you back. Bye. Shannon, this is Gordon. You need to call my cell phone right now. If you're there, please pick up. I'm on my way to Valdez's office. I shut off the phone and moved into the fast lane. The thought crossed my mind that she might have tried to kill herself. But as I drove along, I convinced myself she wasn't the type that would commit suicide. I would, Garrity. If 
I knew I was infected with the virus, I would kill myself if I had the guts. But I was too angry right now. Angry that this would happen to me. I raced into New York City, not caring if I got stopped by the police. My head was battered with thoughts of boats and helicopters above the sound. And the media would be there. I was lucky to have bypassed them before I left the house. I still held the cell phone and pushed the redial button. Shannon's line rang loudly. Hello, Shannon McCurry here. Actually, if I were here, you wouldn't be hearing this funny little message. Well, let me know what's up and I'll call you back. Bye. Shannon, please pick up. Shannon, I have to talk with you. Shannon. I crossed through the city quickly. The rush hour traffic was gone. I found myself breathing out of control. Even with the air blasting, I was sweating through my shirt. I loosened my tie and then my upper shirt button. I put in a CD and cranked up the sound. Fifteen minutes later, now in New Jersey, I pushed the redial again. Hello, Shannon McCurry here. Actually, if I were here, you wouldn't be hearing this funny little message. Well, let me know what's up and I'll call you back. Bye. Shannon, Shannon, please. If I've got this HIV thing, we have to talk. If we're both going to die, Shannon, I love you. Please, please pick up. What if she were dead? I pushed off the button and the phone buzzed again. Keo had an update. We have not found the uh, life raft or your wife's body. I told him right away I was in New Jersey. I told him exactly where I was and claimed I was going to the northern New Jersey warehouse. Do you think she's dead? I wanted to tell him what Valdez had told me. I wanted to tell you, Garrity, that I killed Connie and Walter Thornton. But maybe I didn't have the infection. I saw the green and white sign from my old exit at Cranes Beach. Keo went over more logistics and told me it was just as well I was in New Jersey because the media was asking a lot of questions and he wasn't sure he could keep them away from Tanglewood. Things were closing in on me, Garrity. All my carefully laid plans over the years were nixed by some guy with a bad drug habit. Hello, Shannon McCurry here. Actually, if I were here, you wouldn't be hearing this funny little message. Well, let me know what's up and I'll call you back. Bye. Framed by R.P. Fitton, Chapter 26. I found the clinic easily. The old downtown building looked like it had been recently revitalized with a new brick facade and vinyl windows. I saw Valdez's name in one of the upper windows under the designation of the walk-in clinic. I redialed Shannon's number and pushed open my car door as I ran onto the sidewalk. Hello, Damn this! I pulled open the aluminum frame door and rushed into a dark wood-paneled hall with a green and yellow shag rug. The air hung stuffy and hot. I followed the silver arrows painted on the panels and started up a new set of brown vinyl stair treads. I opened another glass door up top, but no air conditioning existed in this building. I loosened my tie and sprinted down the narrow, darkened hall. I tried to enter through the clinic's locked wooden door. Hello? Hello? I heard Valdez from inside. I'll be right with you. A few seconds later, I heard footsteps. Who is out there? This clinic is closed on Mondays. It's Gordon Butts. Oh, Mr. Butts, yes, of course. I saw the brass lock turn. The doctor pulled open the door and an icy air hit my face. Valdez wore a white shirt and a light blue tie. His eyes saddened when he saw me as if he had already preordained I had the virus. I didn't think I did, Garrity. I was sure I could beat it. Valdez was very professional and articulate and he asked me to step into one of the examining rooms. I looked around the side table and the cabinets and the drawn blinds. He asked me to sit down. Apparently he had this syringe and bottle ready for me. He asked me to roll up my sleeve as he put on a blue breathing mask and thin yellow latex gloves. I pushed up my silken sleeve and he tightened a beige rubberized cord around my arm. He searched for a vein, dabbed alcohol, and then smeared a brown goop over my arm. I felt a sharp prick. The needle hung in my skin. He handed me a sterile white gauze bandage and compressed it slightly as deep red blood accumulated in the tiny vial. 
I'm obviously rushing this. The lab is en route. I don't believe in patients worrying about things like this. We'll find out this afternoon. I can't find Shannon. I keep calling her apartment. Maybe she's having some adjustment problems. I suggested someone for her to see. Psychological counseling. And if your results come back positive, I suggest Mr. Butcher do the same. I won't be infected, I told him confidently. Don't be so sure. Ms. McCurry told me that you and she... That doesn't guarantee anything. It certainly does increase your risk. He dragged out the needle and clamped the compress on my arm. Hold your arm up and press down on the gauze. Poor Shannon, I said with genuine emotion. Her boyfriend shared needles. It's quite risky behavior. What about accelerated treatments? I mean, if I do have it, I have money, lots of money. It depends. Valdez wiped the needle and disposed it in a plastic bag. He sealed the bottle into a small box and placed it in a bag and then in a gray transport container. I'm afraid, Mr. Butts, while there may be in some significant combination of therapies, even those who have contracted disease and who have spent money for treatments can die. So I won't deceive you. I really don't think I have it. I stood and looked out the window. One side of me, Garrity, wished I really would die. I had to face Keogh and his investigation and a whole range of media people. And if I survived that and the infection, I still wouldn't have Shannon. I pulled out my cell phone and pushed the redial, but I knew I'd get the machine. I was ready for it. Hello, I have to go over there. Valdez took off the gloves and mask and sealed them in another bag. He turned as I walked toward the hall. We'll call you on your cell phone this afternoon, Mr. Bratz. Maybe you're right. Sometimes people have intrinsic knowledge about things like this. Maybe you aren't infected. I nodded and went to shake his hand, but he pulled back. A handshake wouldn't spread the disease, Garrity. He reached out with both hands. No matter what happens, you keep the faith. I will. I drove across town, past my old apartment and Guido's as I headed to Shannon's place. My life was folding, Garrity. I parked out in front of her apartment, entered through the common stairwell, and ran through the stagnant air up to the second floor staircase. I knocked on the old panel door, then I hit the redial button. I heard the line ring in my phone earpiece and inside the apartment. Now I could hear the announcement, Garrity, through the door. I rapped on the wood. Shannon! Shannon! I shut off the phone, but it rang right away. I pushed the send button. Hello? Mr. Butts, uh, this is Detective Keogh. Did you find my wife? No, I don't understand it. Nor we found the raft. Listen, when you're done with your duties for the day, Detective Garrity and I would like to speak with you in my office. Garrity? Why Garrity? Well, Detective Garrity has a working knowledge of the company from when she looked into Walter Thornton's death. I want you to bring an attorney, Mr. Butts. We have some questions for you. Sure. I should be down later. I can call you around, too. That would be fine. Why are you looking into the company? I can make no comment on that, and you really do need an attorney with you. Call me at 2, and I will contact Detective Garrity. Will do. Please call me at... I will. I hung up the phone and pounded the door as if I had a fighter against the ropes. What now? Damn it! Shannon, where are you? I turned and leaped down the stairs and headed back to my car. I spun the jag in the street. My destination was Guido's and I drove wildly, wove over the roads and narrowly missed parked cars. Less than ten minutes later, I sped up to the parking lot. I panicked now that you were involved, Garrity, but I didn't fully understand why you guys would be looking into the company. Maybe it had to do with the auditors pushed open the wooden door and stepped into the air-conditioned restaurant's lunchtime crowd. The waitresses in their teal and beige pants reminded me of Shannon. I went to the bar and pushed aside a patron and cornered the bartender. Have you seen Shannon McCurry? I asked her. She smiled. Shannon, no. She hasn't worked here for about a month. Well, I'm looking for her. I have to find her. I haven't seen her. Listen, my name is Gordon Butts. If she comes in, I'm looking for her. It's important. I can tell her. I questioned some of the other waitresses and even left a message with the manager. I crossed into the lobby and dropped a quarter into the public payphone. 
Tom Carles' line rang, but then an odd signal blared in my ear. I held out the phone as a recorded message told me the line was disconnected. I hung up, got my quarter from the slot, and dropped it in again. But the same thing happened. I next dialed Shannon's apartment on my cell phone, wondering what happened to Tom. Maybe he changed his number. In my new life, I had shunned Tom and had left him in the lurch. It was understandable since we never saw each other anymore anyway. Shannon's line rang and clicked. Hello, Shannon McCurry here. Actually, if I were here, you wouldn't be hearing this funny little message. Shut up! Well, I looked around the bar one last like time that. and went outside. Bye. The sun beat down on my head. Suppose she went to the police. Suppose you and Keo were talking to Shannon right now. Maybe she felt guilty for what she hadn't done. I got in my car and I drove aimlessly around town. I passed all the places I used to pass when I was nobody. A few hours ago I had captured the Thornton wealth. But now I was on the precipice, maybe fatally infected, and you and Keo were snooping around company accounts. You couldn't nail me for anything yet. I wondered what Connie had been up to. I didn't contact my attorney, nor was I going to until Valdez called me. I kept driving. Valdez's voice came through the transmission. Mr. Butts, this is Dr. Valdez. I've just spoken with the lab. The next few seconds of silence lasted forever. I slowed the car and let my eyes rest on the incoming breakers. Yes. I said nothing. The car continued rolling forward along the beach. My dry mouth hung open. I once thought if I was infected with a fatal disease, I would want to kill myself. But then again, Garrity, I was younger then and hadn't murdered two people. Mr. Butts, you are still on the line, Mr. Butts. We can discuss calling your own physician and setting a treatment schedule. Mr. Butts. I slowly pushed the thumb over the off switch, shutting off the phone's power. I thrust my foot down on the clutch and shifted. Across the river, I saw Shannon's gray tenement apartment. I veered toward the Inlet River Bridge and crossed gradually. I was numb, but I actually was relieved for a number of unknown reasons. I was liberated, Garrity. I pulled up to her apartment again. I had a gun in the glove compartment and could have easily have killed myself. But then again, I couldn't have told you the story. I grabbed the company camcorder out of the back. I walked upright, climbing each stone step in slow motion. I opened the newly painted red door and moved up to the common hallway. I ascended the stairs, and this time I didn't knock at the door. I lifted up my right leg and sent it crashing through the panels. For a moment, I thought I might actually see Shannon dead inside. But as the door hit the plaster, I saw an empty apartment and clear wood floors. Everything was cleaned out except a black plastic phone on the wood floor and a gray answering machine's orange light in the phone. I set the camera on the ledge separating the kitchen from the living room and sat on the floor next to the answering machine. When you get this file, Garrity, think about whether you should arrest me. I might survive the infection or I might have already blown my brains out. It won't matter because now you know that all of your suspicions were correct. You know I murdered Walter Thornton and his wife. Now I have to pay the price. Garrity broke through the doorway, and Garrett, Danny, and Juan followed her inside. It was late afternoon, and the sunlight shot through the blinds. She took two steps and looked around the corner where she knew Gordon Butts would be sitting. Butts's dark hair was matted, and he swallowed once he looked up. Gordon, you know they're not going to find Connie out there in the sound. Butts furrowed his brow and tilted his head. He was sweating heavily. And they're not going to find your friend Tom Cowles. We have Tom Cowles in custody. He told us how he worked for Connie and against you. I, I don't understand. Tom Cowles was on your boat. He had lowered the raft and was ready as soon as Connie went overboard. She wasn't drunk, Gordon. We wanted to talk with you about corporate accounts. Cowles has confessed to draining those accounts for Connie. The money is long gone. It's converted. Where is Connie? Hold it, Gordon. There's more. There is no Dr. Valdez. It was a sham. You aren't HIV positive. Shannon McCurry was brought into this by Connie. Connie paid them both very well. 
She paid calls way back when you shacked up with that bimbo who suggested you kill Thornton. Somehow Connie pegged you. She knew what you could do for her. She knew every part of what you desired and what you were capable of. You built the business just like she wanted. And then she just set you up. Butts pulled himself up. He had an odd smirk on his face. I don't care about myself. He looked down at the answering machine. You have to find Connie. You have to find her. That's not going to happen. She left the country with the money. What about Shannon? It's not her real name. I, I don't know where she is, Gordon. Butts looked up and slowly smiled, as if he appreciated the plan's perfection and magnitude. He held up his wrists and Garrity snapped on the cuffs. I was entrapped, Garrity. Framed. Yeah, you were set up. But you're all done, Gordon. Whatever happened on that boat Saturday night is irrelevant. Where Shannon McCurry went or where Connie Thornton is and what she's done with the money is irrelevant. Garrity pulled out an oxidized brass case from her coat pocket and placed it in Butts's hand. Butts stared at it and nodded as he slowly looked up with glazed eyes. I'm arresting you, Gordon, for the murder of Walter Thornton on the Mavisville Road, April 3rd. 2011. Thanks for listening to Framed. I did not have foreknowledge of Smith's book or any other book when I wrote Framed. My background in sales is evident, but I put myself in the head of Connie Thornton and how I would set up some guy to do the dirty work to kill her husband and steal his company. The first thing to do is to rope in old Walter Thornton, which she must have done at some point in time because she was there with him. But did that relationship, those two together, ever make any sense? Then I would look for a Gordon Butts type of arrogant loser who has the sales experience. Bring him on board and the rest is manipulation and aggrandizement. Ah, the confessions of a con man writer. This con man writer is going back to the Matthias Jones series on the lighter slash deadly side. The strange death of Dr. Povich. Next time on Fitton on the Air. This is Robert P. Fitton getting away from frame and heading up to Hamilton, New Hampshire. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.